Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We are continuing our journey through this letter of the Apostle Paul written to a struggling church in the Greek city of Corinth. Corinth, if you will remember, is a very cosmopolitan city, or it was. It was full of influence, full of wealth, power, education. It's full of the elite, those that consider themselves the influencers, the noble. In that regard, it would be similar to a Hollywood or a L.A. or New York City from today. It's full of people that are calling the shots, that are trendsetters, that are, at least in their mind, worthy of imitation, emulation. And this Corinthian mindset had unsurprisingly found its way into the church, this mindset that elevates the powerful, the elite, the talented, the articulate, those with rhetorical flair, those that are winsome and moving. And it says that everybody else needs to change in order to look like them. They are the ones that everybody else needs to be like. They are the trendsetters. Everybody else needs to improve and model after them. If you want to succeed, you need to speak like these elite. You need to dress like them. You need to eat like them. You need to spend your money like them. You need to adopt their morals and their causes, their priorities. You need to imitate them. And our passage tonight from Paul turns all of that on its head. He says that true love doesn't seek to force another to change. Rather, true love looks like a willingness to change for the good of another, a willingness to adapt, a willingness to be flexible, all so that the gospel, the good news, can speed ahead. For the mature Christian, God's grace prompts flexibility within us, which promotes gospel progress to others. God's love to us promotes a flexibility in us that promotes the gospel's progress. That's where we're headed tonight. But let's, let's first read our passage, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Hear the word of our Lord. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Thus ends the reading of God's word for us tonight. Let's pray for our time. Holy Father, we ask that you would mold us and make us, that you would refine us, that you would mature us, that you would edify us, that you would give us this gospel-motivated disposition to sacrifice for the good of another. And do all of this not for our own glory or for our own benefit, but that the gospel might be shared here in Montgomery 
and around the world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll see from Paul tonight three aspects of his person and his ministry, three attributes who, that marked who Paul was and what he was seeking to do with his ministerial work. This will be his disposition, his inclination, and his motivation. We'll see his disposition, his inclination, and his motivation. Let's look at first verse 19 and see Paul's disposition, which was that he was willing to sacrifice. Paul was disposed to be willing to sacrifice for the good of others. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul has been in this chapter thus far defending his own rights. If you'll remember last week, Paul defended his status as an apostle, specifically defending his own right to compensation as is fitting for his work among them. He argued that like a soldier deserved to be compensated for his service and like a farmer deserves to taste of the fruit of his farming, so too does a minister of God called and appointed deserve to be compensated for his labors among the people of God. But we also saw how Paul says that he did not avail himself of his right to compensation. If you look just just above to verse 12, he says, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul defended his decision to not take any compensation so that no one would have any grounds of ignoring his gospel message on account of any alleged greediness or ambition on Paul's part. Nobody could say of Paul, you're just in it for the money. You're merely preaching this message to line your own pockets and to appease your own ambition, your thirst for power. Nobody could make that claim of Paul or Barnabas, and even if they tried, it wouldn't stick. Paul hadn't taken a salary or any benefits from the Corinthians, and so greedy ambition couldn't have been a motivation for him. And now in in this verse, he's clarifying the same principle. He says, although I am free from all, that is, he possesses genuine freedom in Christ. He's not bound by the opinions or the will of any man. Even though he is genuinely free, Paul says, I've made myself a servant of all. Here's the situation. Paul isn't bound to any man or woman. He doesn't owe anybody anything. He's not limited or constrained by the consciences or the preferences or opinions of any individual or any institution. In the context of chapter 8, we could say Paul is genuinely free to eat the idle meat or to not eat it. He's not bound to anybody. He's got rights both as a Christian and as an apostle. And yet Paul says that although he's not bound or enslaved to anyone, he has made himself a servant, a slave. He's bound himself, enslaved himself to everyone else. That's what the end of verse 19 says. I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul's disposition towards others was such that he would willingly give up legitimate freedom. He would bind himself, limit, constrain himself to the weaknesses and to the preferences of others in order that the gospel might proceed, that it might flourish. His disposition was an eagerness to constrain his own freedom so that others might be convinced of the message he was proclaiming, a willingness to sacrifice legitimate rights in order that others might have no occasion for stumbling. This is Paul's disposition. 
a willingness, indeed an eagerness to forsake his real freedom in order that somebody else would have no occasion to ignore his message. And that's a disposition of love. That's a selfless disposition. We've examined in previous sermons how such a disposition is an act of love and and a preeminent example of a picture of Jesus himself. But I'd like to look at this disposition from a different angle tonight, and that's the angle of humility. To have such a disposition like Paul had that would incline you to sacrifice your own freedoms for the good of another, that requires great humility. A willingness to sacrifice for others requires this. Only meekness can motivate the true foregoing of freedom. A proud man is unwilling to sacrifice for the good of another. He's too concerned with his own rights. It's it's his money. Why would he give that up to somebody else? It's his time, and his time is more valuable. Why would he spend it on the needs of another? His effort is not worth wasting on somebody else that can't benefit him. A proud man looks like the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan, unwilling to engage somebody in need because it was beneath them. He's unconcerned with those that can only cost him, someone who can't benefit him somehow. A proud person is like a parent, for example, that's more concerned about their own comfort and peace rather than the spiritual well-being of their children. So they yell and bark orders at them rather than shepherding the heart of that child with tenderness and the truth of God's word. The proud person is someone who's controlled by fear, dominated by men's opinions, and, and by defending their own reputation. And so maybe they tend to flatter others, kissing up to them, to the right people, or degrade others, bad-mouthing them in order to make themselves seem that much better. A proud person is quick to speak and slow to listen, because what could he possibly have to learn from someone else? He's never met a topic in which he's not an expert. He's never met a quarrel he was unafraid to win. And thus a proud person is often divisive, They don't back down. They're unwilling to nuance or concede because both of which seem like weakness to him, and he's certainly not that. He's zealous for truth, even at the expense of compassion, because compassion smells too much like weakness to him. But a humble person, a humble person is willing to sacrifice greatly for others. He's willing to sacrifice his own reputation in the eyes of men so that he could serve another because he knows that what men think of him is ultimately irrelevant. It's the fear of the Lord that motivates a humble man. A humble man knows his own sinfulness and his own need for gentle correction, and so he's not harsh with his children. He shows them tenderness like Christ has shown him. A a humble man doesn't need to flatter others, but he, he always speaks the truth. And does so in love and in encouragement, not in a self-interested way, but in a way that seeks to build up others for their good. A humble man is quick to listen and slow to speak because he knows his own fallibility very well. He's very aware that he might be wrong. He might be mistaken in his logic. He might need the wisdom of someone else. And so he delivers his thoughts with humility. He hedges his words. He meekly offers what he knows to be true. And a humble man is never quarrelsome. He absolutely stands for the truth, but he does so with tenderness. 
and a disposition that would give up every right in order to maintain the unity and love of the body. A humble man sees no tension at all between compassion and zeal for the truth. In short, a disposition like Paul, a a humble willingness to love others, even at great cost, even at, at the cost of giving up legitimate rights, is what we're seeing in this text. It's a disposition that looks like Jesus. Jesus was willing to mingle with those who could do nothing but tarnish his reputation among men. He ate with sinners, tax collectors, the most despised of the day. He spoke truthfully and compassionately to everyone, regardless of their position or their status. And Jesus wasn't quarrelsome. He didn't revile, even though he himself was wickedly reviled. He didn't bite back in vengeance. 1 Peter 2 says that he instead entrusted himself to the Father, who would judge all things justly. He didn't demand his rights now, but because he believed that his father would handle it all in the end, God would vindicate him. And so he didn't have to claw and clamor for his reputation. And I think the key to having a disposition of love like Jesus, I think this is the key to having a disposition of love like Jesus. We can humbly serve others at great cost in this life because we know that God sees it all and that God is a just judge. God sees everything, everything done in secret, everything done publicly, and he will give us our just reward. Any sacrifice we make in this life, any rights that we give up for the good of another will be justly rewarded in the next life. Anything we give up here for the sake of another will be repaid in abundance. This gospel of Jesus frees us from demanding our rights and it allows us to give them up in the humble service of others, which is exactly what Christ has done for us. For those that believe, we have been forgiven of our prideful boasting or our flattering speech, of being quick to speak and slow to listen. We've been forgiven of demanding our rights, of seeking to use and dominate others in order to feed our selfish ambition. Christ has borne the penalty of all of that, and he's nailed it to the cross. It's dead and buried in the grave, and we've been raised with him into new life. We've been reborn by his Holy Spirit, granted not merely forgiveness, but new life in the Spirit, a life that can and should be marked with growing humility. Humility because we've been granted such a forgiveness, because we've been freed by a Savior who gave up his rights so that we might be freed from sin. And part of that salvation is also the promise of future reward. Not only have we been saved from sin's penalty and granted new life, granted the Spirit who helps us grow in holiness, but we've been promised that God will reward us for the good deeds that we do. Every sacrifice we make for another, every time we give up our rights so that another might be blessed, God will see. And God will reward. And when we keep that in mind, it makes the sacrifices here seem so much smaller by comparison. But if you're not yet believing in Christ, if you're not trusting in Jesus as your only means of forgiveness, if you're pridefully resisting his offer and ignoring his good news, then beware that our just judge will repay you as well but you will not be rewarded with pleasant gifts and a joyful embrace. 
Rather, you will be justly rewarded with pain and misery. You will reap the fruit of your prideful sowing, the fruit of eternity in hell, a place where the prideful in this life are eternally humbled. The boastful and the arrogant will spend forever in humiliation. Scripture speaks of hell as a place of terrible, miserable torment that does not stop. And because you demanded your rights and your freedom here and now, you will be enslaved there forever. And so my plea to you is don't let this be your fate. Come to Christ tonight and hear of his loving gospel again. You can avoid the wrath to come and instead have eternal bliss in the blessed presence of God. All you must do is believe. Hear of this Jesus. Read of him in his word. Trust in him and you will be granted forgiveness and new life. Granted the Holy Spirit to help you grow in holiness and humility. Do not delay. Trust in him this very night and you too can have your soul spared from eternal misery because of pride. Humility and a willingness to sacrifice for the good of another. That was Paul's disposition. Now let's look at verses 20 to 22 and see Paul's inclination. Paul's inclination. In these verses we see highlighted Paul's love-motivated inclination to adapt. He was inclined by love to adapt for the sake of others. Or we could say it another way. We could say we see here Paul's gospel-motivated flexibility. Let's read verse 20. He says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. Paul says that when he was dealing with the Jews, he became like a Jew, as a Jew, meaning he adopted Jewish customs. He was willing to submit to whatever Jewish dietary laws for the sake of not offending a brother. Even though he was legitimately freed by Christ from such constraints on his diet, he willingly gave up such liberties in order to not offend. That's what he means by though not being myself under the law. Even though he's not bound by Jewish law anymore, he's free in Christ, he willingly submitted to it again in order to win those under the law. But he wasn't willing just to adapt for the Jews. Look at verse 21. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. And so, To those outside of the law, that is the Gentiles, those were the non-Jews, not under the Jewish law. Paul says he became as one outside of the law. He, as far as he was able to do without sinning, was willing to adopt the customs and the practices of the Gentiles in order that he might reach the Gentiles. Love for God and for the lost compelled Paul to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. He was willing to adapt to be flexible, to give up his preferences so that no one would be offended by him and so that the gospel might be maximally proclaimed. But notice Paul's parenthetical remark in verse 21. Lest Paul be misunderstood as saying he's not under any law at all, indeed saying that he was lawless, Paul says, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. This might be confusing language, and so I want to stop here for a minute. 
So Paul, are you under the law or not? Is the law something that we can come under when dealing with the Jews and then throw off when dealing with the Gentiles? If so, does that mean Christians have no law at all? Is the law of God something different than the law of Christ? So to clarify some of these questions, let's take a minute to talk about biblical law. The word law, which is Torah in the Old Testament, is used in several complementary ways in the Bible. Sometimes the word law is used to refer to the entirety of the Old Covenant, like when Paul says you're not under law, you're under grace. Sometimes the word law refers to God's writings. So when the psalmist says, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Sometimes the word law refers to the moral law of God, most clearly summarized in the Ten Commandments. And so wherever we read the word law in the Bible, it's helpful for us to see how the word is being used in that immediate context to help us determine what the author means. Furthermore, we can look at theologians in the past and our confession of faith, see that they're helpful here. It teaches that the Old Testament law can be thought of as divided up. The law, the Old Covenant law, was not a single monolithic element. Jesus himself taught that the law was not some uniform code when he condemned the Pharisees of being guilty of neglecting the weightier matters of the law. That statement right there assumes that some of the law is more fundamental, more weighty, and others less so. The more fundamental aspect of God's law is called the moral law. Jesus summarized this moral law when he said, Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's how Jesus summarized the law. It's a good summary of the Ten Commandments. The, the first table of the law, Commandments 1 through 4, teaches how to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, how to worship Him. The second table of the law, Commandments 5 through 10, teaches how to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the moral law, and it was related to, but distinct from, the rest of the law. That's why if you look in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments were referred to as the law, the Torah, and the rest of the Old Testament code was called the judgments of God. What part of the law was written by the finger of God himself on tablets? The moral law. The rest was written by Moses. What law was placed in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. The rest of the Mosaic law was not. Is everybody still with me? I don't want to lose anybody. This is important, as I'll explain in a moment. And so we have this category of moral law. And this moral law is unchanging. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments. The moral law is a reflection of God's character. And because God's reflection, his essence never changes, his moral reflection of moral law will never change. That's why people were still guilty of sin prior to the giving of the law in Mount Sinai in the Old Covenant. The moral law was in place before the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. There was still right and wrong. There was still a moral code even before Mount Sinai. And it is to this moral law, which doesn't change, that God, sometimes of his own free will, will add additional laws built off of the moral law. Theologians call these additional laws positive laws. These are laws attached to specific covenants, agreements that God makes with men. So, for example, now in the new covenant, 
We are called to baptize believers. We're called to take the Lord's Supper. We're called to have elders and deacons. All of these are not eternal, unchanging moral law. They didn't have baptisms and the Lord's Supper in the Old Covenant. Moses was not guilty for not taking the Lord's Supper, not being baptized. He wasn't under New Covenant positive law like we are. Conversely, the Old Covenant had positive laws attached to it as well. Some of them regulated the worship of Israel, right, the sacrificial system, the washings, the tabernacle, the temple. We might call these the ceremonial aspects of the law. Similarly, the Old Covenant had laws that regulated the nation of Israel. Laws about restitution or slavery or marriage or rebellious children even. These laws we might call the civil or judicial laws. And so we have the ceremonial and the judicial laws built upon the foundation of an unchanging moral law. And these positive laws were put in place and tied to a specific covenant, the old covenant. And so when the old covenant expires, so do its positive laws. And so when we trust in Christ today, we're no longer under the old covenant with its positive laws, which regulated ceremonies and its civil laws, which regulated the government of Israel. Praise God, we don't have dietary restrictions and purity laws and washings. We don't have to go to Leviticus to figure out what we can wear for the day. We don't take rebellious children or adulterers or homosexuals out back and stone them. We're not under the law of Moses. That's why Paul could choose to act like a Gentile when he was with the Gentiles. He's no longer under the law of Moses. However, the moral core, the moral law, remains unchanged. It doesn't change because right and wrong is not a flexible standard because God is not a flexible God. And thus, we too remain under the moral law. We're, under, we're in the new covenant and we have new covenant positive laws, like I mentioned above, baptism, Lord's Supper. But we're still under the moral law of God. So to bring this back to 1 Corinthians 9, if I've lost any of you, you can come back now. When Paul says he's not under the law, he means he's no longer bound by the parts of the Mosaic law that have been fulfilled by Christ. He's not under the ceremonial or the civil law. But that doesn't mean that he is now lawless. Rather, Paul would affirm that he's under the moral law of God and any positive laws that Jesus put in place in his new covenant. And this status as somebody under the law of Christ rather than the law of Moses frees Paul up to have maximal gospel flexibility. He's not bound by ceremonial codes, though he could put himself under them if it needs to, to help the speed of the gospel. He's not bound by Jewish dietary restrictions, but he's free to submit to them for the sake of loving brothers well. He doesn't have to dress in particular ways or take special washings or observe special calendar holy days. He's free. But even though he is free in Christ, he's willing to observe whatever customs the Jews or the Gentiles might have, as long as they don't cause him to violate the law of Christ. And so that's Paul's inclination, a willingness to adapt, a, a disposition of flexibility in order to reach everyone that he can. And that's what he says to sum it up in verse 23 or 22. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. 
That's Paul's inclination. He's willing to become like the weak to those whose conscience was not yet fully matured in order that he might reach the weak. Paul was willing to become all things to all people. Now it's worth stopping for a minute on this phrase, becoming all things to all people that we might save some, because this phrase has been used to justify some problematic behaviors. Some people will use this as a trump card to engage in unwise behavior, as if to say we can do whatever we want as long as our motivation is to win people. For example, you see this on the mission field sometimes, where the church decides it's going to um, become all things to all people in order to reach them, and so they're going to abandon Lord's Day worship, Sunday worship in a Muslim country, and instead worship on Friday, because that's when more people are available. I don't think we have the liberty to choose the day that the entirety of church history has commemorated as the day that the Lord has raised from the dead, Sunday. Or to pick a more controversial topic of trying to become all things to all men, some people might choose to refer to the Christian God as Allah because the Muslims around them know the word Allah and it's more comfortable to them and it's not as offensive to them. Even though God has chosen to reveal himself in the Bible by many specific names, they choose to rename God and use a pagan name for God so that they don't offend Muslim worshipers. I think that is clearly outside of the bounds of this text. Paul would not go there. This text is not an infinitely elastic phrase that can be used to justify any behavior as long as our motives are evangelistic. We can never violate the law of Christ. That is, we can never violate God's clearly revealed moral law, nor his positive laws of the new covenant, even if our hearts are motivated by genuine evangelistic zeal. Gospel adaptability has its limits. We don't have the liberty to contradict the clear teaching of God's word, even if we do it in the name of personal evangelism or missions. Enough about that. Let's keep moving. We've seen Paul's disposition, which was humble self-sacrifice. We've seen his um, inclination, which was towards gospel adaptability. Now let's move on to the final verse of our passage and see Paul's motivation. Paul's motivation. We see here in verse 23 why Paul is willing to sacrifice. Why Paul is willing to adapt. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. The gospel. He does it for the gospel, the message of the good news about Jesus Christ dying for sinners. And I think we can say that this motivation has two aspects. He does it for gospel advance, and he does it for gospel blessings. Gospel advance and gospel blessings. The advance part is is a recurring theme throughout this passage. He gives up his rights, he lays down his privileges, he lays down his preferences in order that nobody would have a reason to stumble over his behavior. He doesn't want to get in the way of the message. Paul doesn't want to hinder the advance of the gospel. And that's a good goal for any of us. Does my behavior in any way present a speed bump for the gospel? Am I behaving in a way that causes the message to be impeded, slowed, or even obscured? If so, that is a problem. 
And I've spoken about that more than once in the last couple of chapters, so we'll keep moving. But notice also how Paul closes this passage by talking about gospel blessings. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. What blessings? Where did that come from? Well, we might translate it as fellow partaker, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. That is the gospel. The blessings and benefits of the gospel message. Paul wanted everyone around him to be a fellow partaker with him in the blessings of the gospel. He knew the message. He knew the benefits that come with belief. And he wanted that extended to everyone else. He wasn't content to keep it all to himself. He wanted to share that good news. He wanted everyone else to taste of the genuine freedom that comes with faith in Christ. To share in the blessing of having a conscience that has been washed clean. To share in the feeling of joy that comes when you're no longer enslaved to sin. To taste of the hope that we can have when we know that death no longer has its sting. To have the blessing of anticipation of a world to come rather than living in this broken and cursed world. Having a world to come that's a forever perfect place with no more sin and no more death. That's Paul's motivation and that's the blessing of the gospel. A blessing that he was not content to keep to himself. He wouldn't hide it under a bushel. No, he was going to let his light shine as the children's song goes. And so how, do, how often are we hiding this gospel under a bushel? How often do we let fear or busyness, or thoughtlessness, a, a lack of intentionality, keep us from sharing this message with those who need it most? Do you find in yourself gospel motivation like Paul has? I know that too often I find the absence of such a motivation within me. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing, or of seeming like a fool, or Maybe I'm just thoughtless and unintentional with the message of hope that I have been given. And if that's you too, then remember that Christ knows. Christ knows your fears. He knows your failings and he died for them anyway. He's not ashamed of you. Christ gave up his own rights for you so that you could be forgiven of such sin. And he was willing to do that because he was willing to do that you too can be empowered to overcome your fear. No fear of man, no shame of failure, no conversational bumbling or thoughtlessness can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You've been washed. You've been justified. You've been adopted into God's own household. You've been granted eternal blessings. You've been granted an inheritance that can never be touched by this world. That's gospel blessings. Linger on those blessings. Do you think often of the fruit that has come to you because of Christ's faithfulness? Do you meditate on the blessings of the gospel? If you do, then let that be the fuel that reignites your motivation to share with others. How could you hold this to yourself? It's such good news. Let God's kind action towards you his love towards you be the spark that warms your heart again. And let that gospel blessing then compel you 
to share that message of love with others. That was Paul's motivation. May it be all of ours as well. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ, for the good gifts that you've given to us in the gospel, for the blessings of forgiveness, for the blessings of new life, of rebirth, of being remade, of being reshaped and reformed and refashioned into the image of the Son himself. We thank you for an inheritance that waits for us, for rewards that await us in heaven. It will all come from your good hand. Let us linger often on these blessings and let that stir us to be evangelistic, to want to be fishers of men. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close by standing and singing the doxology together.